the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Tuesday, January 18th, 2022. I was having a discussion with a friend long steeped in the conservative movement by long. I mean, he was part of the Sharon Statement and the Goldwater Movement of the early 1960s. And we were speaking about the state of the movement we call conservative or conservatism, noting all the tribulations within our movement and party. And just look at the passions as they run during the primary Republican election efforts, for example. I asked, why is it we are so divided, so disparate? His answer, a good one, was lack of leadership, uh, excuse me, lack of leadership or such diffuse leadership or confusion in our leadership. We've had a few guests on talking about new kinds of conservatism or old, old kinds of conservatism with new names. You've heard other variations from the past, neoconservatism, one of the most misunderstood labels ever, traditional conservatives, paleoconservatives, uh, libertarian conservatives, social conservatives. National conservatism is but one of the kinds you hear of more and more now. A tenant to much of this is a debate about Ronald Reagan, and you will see in many of these efforts lines such as, this is not the 1980s anymore, or warmed over Reaganism is not going to do it anymore. You get that sort of thing. Ironically, it was William Buckley and National Review that helped lead the uniting of all the previous factions into what was called fusionism in the 1960s. Why do I say ironic? Because it was National Review in their 2016 January issue titled Against Trump that I think began or reopened the Great Divide once again, the divide they had worked so hard to keep together. I often point out it's interesting that William Buckley himself never wrote a book on conservatism, but he did write Up From Liberalism, a book on liberalism. One might say every book he wrote was a book about conservatism, but then again, I might just as well say everything written by James Madison is conservatism as well, without the title or the singular book. The other odd problem is that conservatism um, complaining about Reagan Nostrum's being anachronistic is that there's also something endemic to conservatism which abjures and avoids and dislikes changing with the times, doesn't it? As Calvin Coolidge put it about our founding in a response to the progressive Woodrow Wilson's understanding that it could be updated, nay, should be updated from time to time, Coolidge wrote and said this on the 150th anniversary of our founding, quote, about the Declaration of Independence, there is a finality that is exceedingly restful. It is often asserted that the world has made a great deal of progress since 1776, that we have had new thoughts and new experiences, which have given us a great advance over the people of that day, and that we may therefore very well discard their conclusions for something more modern. But that reasoning cannot be applied to this great charter. If all men are created equal, that is final. If they are endowed with inalienable rights, that is final. If governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed, that is final. 
no advance, no progress can be made beyond these propositions. If anyone wishes to deny their truth or their soundness, the only direction in which he can proceed historically is not forward, but backward toward the time when there was no equality, no rights of the individual, no rule of the people. Those who wish to proceed in that direction cannot lay claim to progress. They are reactionary. Their ideas are not more modern, but more ancient than those of the revolutionary founders, close quote. Now, you think about the year he said that, the marking of 150 years of our existence, and we think about what is coming four years hence, the 250th anniversary of our founding. Do you think we'll commemorate it anywhere close to how it was celebrated in 1926? <laughs> Woodrow Wilson put it this way, and this is what Calvin Coolidge was answering, but Woodrow Wilson put it this way, quote, Liberty does not consist in mere general declarations of the rights of man. It consists in the translation of those declarations into definite action, close quote. And he argued for updating the Declaration of Independence, perhaps because the world, which includes, of course, America, never fully accepted the truths of the rights of man. Perhaps because of that, we could have presidents questioning the usefulness of resting on the principle of the self-evident truths of the Declaration in our founding. And, th and thus, Wilson and his intellectual descendants of progressives could and would always agitate, never letting us be at rest, never to be at rest, and never allow it for anyone else. But this would be why Harry Jaffa would point out that in 1776, America was nothing, promising to become everything. And in 1976, our bicentennial, we, having become everything, were looking to and promising to become nothing. And we look to 2026 and worry, so much so that a large and growing part of our education system is trying to tell us, thank you to the New York Times, that we may not even have the date right and that 1776 is meaningless compared to 1619, say. I mean, if truth is relative, so are the thoughts of every American up until the New York Times decided to give money to Cole Hannah-Jones to change our date and create a pedagogy that upends everything we knew until that time. I've put a lot out there. Let me circle back. William Buckley in one essay put it that, quote, I am asked most frequently by members of the lecture audience, what is conservatism? Sometimes the questioner guarding against the windy evasiveness one comes to expect from lecturers will add, preferably in one sentence, one which occasions, on which occasions I have replied, I could not give you a definition of Christianity in one sentence, but that does not mean that Christianity is undefinable. Usually that disposes of the hopes of those who wish a neatly packaged definition of conservatism, which they can stow away, close quote. Charles Kessler of Claremont, who used to work for William Buckley, wrote, quote, American conservatism is in the same boat as almost every other ideology. Conservatism presupposes that there is something worth conserving. But we can hardly know what to conserve without knowing what America is and what it stands for. A political movement cannot form itself around a Socratic declaration of ignorance, close quote. To stand for something or against something, we might say, requires us to stand for some things and against other things. Let's examine the difficulty a bit in practical and identifiable terms. What does every strand of conservatism, every flavor, unitedly agree on? 
Can we take the example of counting by race, race preferences, and using race to award or convey privileges or benefits? Let's do that. As Charles Kessler asks, how many times, for example, have Republicans and majorities of the Congress ducked the chance to eliminate race and gender preferences in federal hiring, contracting, and grant making? Republicans, including many staunch conservatives, flee the issue mostly because they do not care to wage an uphill battle on an issue on which liberals presumptively command the moral high ground. In other words, they concede without quite admitting it that equality and justice are liberal causes to be defined by liberals, defended by liberals, and implemented by liberals. Kessler would go on to write, when conservatives in political office have to accost fundamental principles, they prefer to do so indirectly, from the shadows, behind many veils. Conservatives avoid arguing about questions of justice whenever possible, which means they dislike politics, whose central term is justice whenever possible. On taxation, for instance, conservatives frequently defend a flat or flatter income tax on grounds that it will reduce inefficiencies in the economy, stimulate growth, increase family budgets, and produce as much tax revenue as the existing system. What if it's superior justice? Few indeed are the conservative politicians who will condemn the basic unfairness of taxing extra increments of income, most often the fruits of diligence and hard work at higher rates. The equality of citizens under law, free employment opportunity, other aspects of tax policy, these are moral questions, too, when seen from the point of view of American principles. But the moral case for them often goes unmade by conservatives who are so depoliticized as to shun any appeal that cannot be reduced to a matter of efficiency, economy, interest, or tradition. Tradition can be a great thing, of course, but it is never so merely because it is traditional. Slaveholders had their ancestral ways, too, after all. To tell right from wrong within a tradition or among traditions requires a moral standard that has a validity or goodness independent of the tradition. It requires an abstract principle. Now, one of the immediate issues that arise by quoting the above is the part or parts of our movement, some in the national conservatism effort, will point out the tax issue is Another example of warmed over Reaganism and ignores what so many are going through right now and the problems with trade and sovereignty and an economics that speaks to average citizens. Could it be, though, that A, since we never fully won the tax war or debate, it is still with us, and that if we had won, outsourcing would have never been an issue? Could it be, perhaps, B, the knowledge and appreciation of the morality of free employment opportunity was never solidified here? Could it be, in other words, that after the Reagan revolution, our party and movement settled around a leadership that never cared about those things in the first place and let them die on the vine shortly after their greatest victories? I'd love to explore this with you. And while do doing so, put in a strong word for what many see as the anachronism of Ronald Reagan. Ask most Republicans you know what they liked about Donald Trump. And the answers surely will be the very answers on matters of policy that Ronald Reagan did stand for, wholesale, or for that matter, Barry Goldwater before him. In other words, there is a pony here. Kessler points us to, quote, a rediscovery of the moral basis and the moral argument for Republican government, writing, a restored republic would entail a federal government that is much more limited than the present state, though energetic in pursuit of its limited objects. 
the inveterate conservative opposition to be to big government would shift in emphasis from horse calls to get the government out of our wallets and off our backs to a new indictment of big government as an insult to our rights, an offense against our equality and a violation of the Constitution. You know who knows this? It seems to me the left, the progressives, which is why 1776 is their enemy in the first place and why they want that date changed and us, the rest of us, never at rest. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. This is, uh, sorry, I have my, uh, yes, I had to prepare for this call as I see uh, who it's coming from. Rick in Phoenix. How are you, Rick? Well, I'm doing, I'm doing well, Seth. Bill, Bill, do you want to tell him what it is I'm kind of grabbing furiously here? You can go on air. <laughs> tell Seth's got Imprimus. Okay, I had to grab my current issue of Imprimus. <laughs> this is the um, the monthly uh, free publication from Hillsdale College, which is uh, such important and critical reading. Rick, welcome yes. to the show. Thanks for calling in. Thank you, brother Seth. It is. Uh, I, 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 I'm I'm astonished and astounded that you would have to prepare for me <laughs> well i just i saw you know i get a little line here saying what someone's calling about and uh yeah. and i just <laughs> i had taken <laughs> i had received this in the mail a day or two ago maybe three and i um yeah i am behind on my reading but i have That's in front okay. of me the way out by larry p arn president of aforementioned hillsdale college yes yes well uh it's okay that you haven't read it yet because i think you will when you read it you will want to take some time to read and digest it and i just want to recommend uh the article to everybody okay, it good. is a powerful powerful article uh, the title of it is The Way Out. Yeah. But the first half of the article, he talks about how we got into the mess that we're in mm. and the reasons for it and deals with how we get out of the mess that we're in and the reasons for that. And a lot of it has to do with what uh, you and I and others on your program and callers have talked about is this uh, entrenched bureaucracy that has just uh, buried uh, so many things in our country, one of those things being the virtue of, uh, and necessity, I should say, of accountability. Yes. Yes, and 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 they've made it more ever more difficult. If I if I <clears throat> if I understand, and I'm just going to guess what what this is more and more about. Just looking at uh, the opening lines of Larry Arn's piece here, uh-huh. if I'm going to guess that a big part of this has to do <clears throat> with the governance by elites, Govern- government. Yes. Am I am I onto something here? Yes, you are. Okay, yes, you are. So mm-hmm. this and and the and and the reason this is a unity of of things is that the first serious study of progressivism and the governance by the elites came out of Claremont. Uh, it was Ken Masugi's work 
along with John Marini's uh, co-founders of the Claremont Institute with Larry Arn. He was oh, the oh, um, okay. he, he right. was a co-founder of the Claremont Institute. So we were all Harry Jaffa's babies, all of us. Yeah. Um, and uh, Larry, of course, right before uh, going to become president of Hillsdale College, was the president of the Claremont Institute. So, so right. we've 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 kept our uh, eye and tried to encourage the conservative movement to take on progressivism and its managerial elite governing structure. Yes. What we find here is to the degree uh, we haven't been listened to, the degree uh, to which America is more and more governed by an unaccountable elite. Right. Uh, right? CDC, Rochelle Walensky, uh, FDA, this kind of stuff, Anthony Fauci, they Fauci, represent it yeah. beautifully, don't they? They represent yes. people we'd never heard of until until the crisis comes, in which case they're deployed against us by people we did elect. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They, are, they are sterling examples. And you know what occurs to me, Seth, that we have seen some, uh, some things pop up over the last 10 or 20 years or so. I don't know if you remember about the fiasco that happened in Colombia with the uh, Secret Service. Uh, that yes. was what ten years vaguely, ago. Vaguely, yes. Vaguely, okay, yes. Well, but remind me, what was it? It, it was... really had an impact yeah. on me okay. because at the time, my daughter and her husband were missionaries there in Colombia, and so I was really following closely. And what it was was these uh, FBI agents had gotten involved in pu- procuring yeah. uh, prostitutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember it was a sex scandal and all of kinds sorts. of stuff. Right, right. And and this was this was our elite protection service right, for right. you know for our our politicians and and you know i i think that in all likelihood if anybody had bothered to check into that it would probably have been directly tied to the fact that this big bureaucracy has developed and they could care less about anything except uh making money and doing their thing and having fun and finally retiring. That's that's the primary purpose. You know, um, you think you mentioned you mentioned the FBI as part of that. What did yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. Uh huh. And I was thinking about this just the other day. This is this is this is a big and important point. Um, yeah, I, I can handle. Let me do our culture and economy update with John. As uh, as we do here, and let me come back on this point uh, in about ten minutes. If you'll if you'll stay tuned, uh, Rick, I'm gonna I'm gonna address it uh, at length here because something has become not only has not only gone full circle, but it's shined a light. It's it's shined a light on the left and the progressives. Let me tease it this way: they wanted to go after J. Edgar Hoover and limit the FBI when the FBI's excesses were about what. What was J. Edgar Hoover's issue? Communism. Communism in America. Since then, since that's not the problem anymore as far as they've seen it and defined it, they say let her rip. We'll get back to this in a few moments. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 34 after the hour. Just as promised, we do our culture and economy update Delightfully with John Dombrowski, he is the founder and president of Grand Canyon Planning Associates, Grand Canyon Planning 
Com is his website, and he has his own radio show here on 960 AM every Saturday morning at 7. How are you, John? Welcome back. Thank you so much. How are you doing, Seth? I'm doing just fine. Thank you, Excellent. sir. Thank you. You're doing good? You're doing good. Yeah. Had a great uh, couple of days off. Good. Back back, back to a crazy stock market day, but overall... Yeah, uh, not, not great numbers on the market today. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's any one thing. Uh, and, and, and before we even touch on that, although feel free to, and, and what I did want to ask you about... Is uh, is this interesting piece I saw at the Wall Street over at the Wall Street Journal, the editorial board, uh, that individual income tax receipts rose a lot higher in the first quarter than uh, than people had expected by 55 percent, actually. And yeah, it, yeah, go ahead. Take it from there. Yeah. Yeah, so the tax receipts rose 55% in the first quarter, which uh substantially higher than what would have been expected. And uh, this is uh, kind of interesting, you know, because they're talking in this article about how uh, obviously the government seems to be running out of money, and they want to raise taxes, and yet we're getting this increased tax revenue coming in. So where is the money going? And this is the question. And, again, we go back to if we ran our own personal finances the way it seems the government runs their finances, uh, we would probably be bankrupt in one or two years. Yeah. Uh, that it, it really it really is about the spending. I mean, that is the conclusion, sure. isn't it? Uh, yeah, because the income is there, obviously. Yeah. We're seeing that revenue increase. And as uh, we would presume that that income would continue to increase as the economy uh, grows, right? Uh, that, yeah, that's and, the and presumption. That was, individual. Yeah. that was the individual tax revenue yeah. by 55%, whereas uh, corporate income taxes rose 44%. Mm-hmm. So not only the individuals, but corporations are paying more. Uh, and uh, yet we're, we're seeing that, um, that the government still is discussing, well, at least the current administration is still talking about wanting to uh, raise taxes mm-hmm. and, uh, of course, try to get this bill back better passed, which it looks like, uh, at the moment anyway, uh, we still have two uh, Democratic senators that are totally against it. Yeah, and it, and it seems to me the justification for those spending increases, and I think the Wall Street Journal goes into this, they come mainly from pandemic-related uh, concerns, which right. in hopeful the- theory will mean we won't have to deal with that too much longer either. One would hope and one would well, expect. Well, we would hope that, but, you know, here we are again now uh, talking about possibly another uh, booster shot, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And continuing to wear masks. We hear these other uh, – Hawaii is starting to implement more mandates. Uh, it's getting harder and harder for people to travel again. Uh, or to so have any I- certainty, Yeah. Or to have any certainty. And again, another uh, article that I, I saw that you had uh, uh, brought up, too, about uh, jobs. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is related states. as well, specifically yeah. in Arizona. Go ahead. And so you've got certain states, uh, red states, that are, for some reason, growing in population. <laughs> and jobs are being uh, created at a much, much faster pace than some of the blue states. Why is that? Because we've got less restrictive uh, government here. And it's giving opportunity for people, those who want to uh, get back into the workforce. We know there's jobs everywhere, but, uh, you know, companies in California and some other states out there are still uh, challenged, especially uh, in the food industry, uh, trying to run their businesses. 
and it's very difficult for uh, people who work for these industries. If you're in a, in, a, in the food industry and you work on tips right now, it's very difficult because you have very uh, limited number of people still going out to restaurants. You know, with the mask with the mask mandates is one thing, but now with the uh, shot mandates to some of these restaurants, you're not able to go to eat at these restaurants unless you have your vax card. Uh, you're limiting the number of people that. Uh, these individuals can serve, which ultimately affects their bottom line, their paycheck. And you know what? People have to feed their families. So moving to another state, a red state, might be the answer. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, th- there is a reason that the four states that have made evidently all this recovery are Idaho, Utah, Montana, Arizona, and now Texas, right? I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, there, exactly there, right. there is something about states, those states. Yes, definitely something going on yeah, there. I yeah, yeah, yeah. We can... We can we can see what's happening. Yeah. So uh, I hope the, you know, even with that, Seth, we still are uh, understaffed here yeah. in this state, yeah. which tells you that there's still a lot more to go. So I can only imagine how it is in some of the other states that aren't as, um, you know, easily uh, or less regulated, you I should betcha. say. You betcha. You betcha. Thank you, John. You bet. Uh, Securities and Advisory Services are with the Kleinwood Securities LLC, a member of FINRA and SIPC, and an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Kleinwood Securities LLC are not affiliated. Our website, GrandCanyonPlanning.com. You didn't miss a beat. Lovely, John. Thank you, as always. Thank you, Seth. Bless you, sir. Welcome back. I wanted to return to the point that uh, earlier caller listener Rick had brought out. Um, by um, commenting on the current issue of Imprimus from Hillsdale College, Larry Arn's essay. There's a pullout quote Larry Arn um, provides us. Winston Churchill wrote this to H.G. Wells. Quote, nothing would be more fatal than for the government of states to get into the hands of the experts. Expert knowledge is limited knowledge. And the unlimited ignorance of the plain man who knows only what hurts is a safer guide than any vigorous direction of a specialized character. Why should you assume that all the all why should you assume that all except doctors, engineers, etc. are drones or worse? We've been talking about this now throughout covid. I think covid has put this problem of progressivism and governance by the elites into Fairly sharp relief. Um, the best book on progressivism was written uh, by uh, by Brad Watson, Brad Bradley Watson, and he writes um, the progressive idea. Simply put, is that the principled American constitutionalism of fixed natural rights and limited and dispersed powers must be overturned and replaced by an organic evolutionary model of the Constitution that facilitates the authority of experts dedicated to the expansion of the public sphere and political control. Um, Now, think about how well those experts have fared for us. Let's just start with the thing we are reminded by from a professor at ASU. The CDC is an abbreviated name of what that institution is. It's actually and completely known as the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. How well is it done on its name? How well is it done on disease control? How well has it done on prevention? Um, It has, it would earn an F 
It should earn an F. It deserves an F. And yet, in that F, we realize that this, when all we've done as a society, to our detriment, it turns out, is bowed and given obeisance to that leadership. The Fauci's, the Walensky's, the Redfields, the Redfields, the people we never elected and never even really heard of until they were trotted out as our saviors. And not even in their area, call it uh, limited if you want, area of limited knowledge to borrow Winston Churchill, not even in their area have they been able to maintain anything like a clear message or anything like consistency. Just today, just today, the CDC is updating its mask guidance, masking guidance, to, um, to, to, to what NPR reported two weeks ago and what Michael Osterholm, who used to advise Joe Biden, said two months before that, which is cloth masks don't work. Now the CDC is on to this and telling us only N95s and K-N95s or K-95s are the way to go, which is exactly what we haven't been told up to now. Or we can talk about the booster and the vaccination and Omicron. Not one thing that has been said a week ago is true about it today. Not one. So we get this situation. Rochelle Walensky, head of the CDC, interviewing in the Wall Street Journal. She says the pandemic threw curveballs that she should have anticipated. She thinks she should have made it clearer to the public that new rules and guidelines were subject subject to change if the nature of the fight against COVID-19 shifted again. She says, I think what I have not conveyed is the uncertainty in a lot of these situations. She has committed to, quote, quote, communicating CDC policy more clearly and added that she is being coached by a media consultant and plans more media briefings outside those held at the White House. Oh, goody gumdrops, because in a pandemic, that's what you need. Image consultants, media consultants. This notion that she didn't convey uncertainty in a lot of these situations. My gosh. I mean, really, in January of 2022, she's saying that. When what we have been when we have been saying that all we needed early on was a little bit, just a little bit of self-doubt, just a little bit of caution, just a little bit of humility from the experts, the Burkses and the Fauci's early on saying what we think today is true, but we're not certain. But of course, that wouldn't do that just wouldn't do. Because how else could you shame people? How else could you force people? How else could you shove people around and embarrass them? How else could you engage in lockdowns if you weren't certain? How else could you disrupt our kids' educational and social lives if you didn't have absolute authority and scientific wisdom and right on your side? They've been playing this game with us, I was going to say for two years, certainly throughout the COVID pandemic, but they've been playing this game with us for a lot longer than that, a lot longer than that. And what it turns out is some of these experts, so highly educated and specialized in their field, 
not only don't know about everything else that they're impacting, they may not even know or they may not even be telling us the truth about what they know within their highly specialized area of knowledge. Take the most obvious. And we could do this on 20 things, but it's obvious and everyone knows this one. So let's just use it. Anthony Fauci and his initial statement that we should not be wearing masks back in January, uh, back in uh, February of uh, 2020, that we should that we should not be wearing masks because they don't do that much good in stopping the transmission of a virus. NBC interview. You remember it. We don't need to play it again right now. And the reporter even said to Fauci, in fact, the masks could hurt or end up causing more harm because of schmutz. Remember, we all got the Yiddish lesson of schmutz, dirt, uh, microbes on the mask that you could be, you know, reinfecting yourself or others with. And Anthony Fauci said, yes. Then, of course, that changed. Of course, that changed the following month when we all had to become a masked society. And we well know two things, and the media has never put Anthony Fauci on the spot about these two things. We know that he has never been asked and never produced a study that he was basing his first answer on or a study that contradicted the study he was basing his first answer on. If he is telling you we don't need to wear masks, I'm telling you, they don't stop the viruses. That's clearly got to be based on something, right? Well, what changed? What science changed? Or was he lying to us then as he ended up having to admit he was lying to us about herd immunity? Even the New York Times couldn't take that one. They're the ones that disclosed he was lying about herd immunity. I don't think they know what they think they know. But what's more important is the American people should understand that we're in the hands of these anointed individuals, these anointed officials we have ceded all our freedom and authority to. Think about it. Think about it. The businesses that weren't open, the schools that weren't open, that didn't come from elected officials that you know of and had the choice of selecting or not selecting. That came from an established class of experts you never elected. Here's the proof. They're the same people that were there under Trump. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson show. Um, let me let me close out just this thought on leadership by experts, uh, elite and progressives and uh, go back to Larry Arn's piece in uh, in Primus. I should get him on. Bill, remind me to reach out to Larry. It'd be good to get him on maybe for an hour. Anyway, um, it's not just government, of course. It's just all the more offensive when it is government because we thought – we were electing our leadership in something called a Republican form of government. But Larry writes, as far as influence is concerned, business is dominated by large institutions whose leaders are also educated in the same universities that conceived bureaucratic government and trained the bureaucrats and media heads that we now suffer under. This provides a ground of agreement between big business and the bureaucratic state. Anyway, agree or not, businesses are vulnerable to regulation, and to mitigate the risk of regulatory harm, they play the game. They send lobbyists to Washington, make political contributions, hire armies of lawyers. If you're big enough to play the game, there are plenty of advantages to be won. If you are not big enough to play the game, well, in that case, you are on your own, except, close quote, except, except that the bureaucratic state has become 
so large and all the agencies so um, all-encompassing and intrusive that they can regulate and threaten you with regulation for lack of compliance if you aren't on their side or if you are not towing the line. Think of the federal contractors that do not have a break from vaccine mandates as but one example. And think about if the Supreme Court went the other way last, uh, was, was, was it Friday? Last week, I think it was last Friday, if the Supreme Court went the other way, corporations that might even be, you know, conservative at the leadership level still have a lot of regulation and regulatory punishment or sanction they could receive from the federal government if they didn't enforce what the federal government was wanting. Now, this all comes not just to the employed in these corporations, but to all of us, all of us, whether we work or don't work. Little little, little item that I don't think got enough airplay a week ago, Joe Biden uh, Joe Biden did a virtual meeting, a virtual town hall uh, from his uh, executive office building, and he said, quote, I make a special appeal to social media companies and media outlets. Please deal with disinformation and misinformation that's on your shows. Think about that. You think about that. You think about what happened when Republicans were lecturing businesses or communications organizations to censor. Think about that. Were they able to get away with it? They were not. They're able to get away with it now. You know why? Because there's a uniformity of agreement on this position. There's a uniformity of agreement that the government is right when it's run by a Democrat and that there is only one right way to govern ourselves, and that's the left way. It's a very dangerous collusion, except collusion implies secret. And it's not secret. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.